You're listening to A Catholic Bible Study on the Gospel of Matthew with Scripture scholars Dr. Tim Gray and Dr. Michael Barber. This podcast is produced by the Augustine Institute, an apostolate helping Catholics understand, live, and share their faith. Welcome to Form Live. I'm Tim Gray, president of the Augustine Institute, and joining me is one of our professors of uh, Scripture, Dr. Michael Barber. So Good to be with you. We enjoy this Bible study and hope you can join us for this uh, our continuation of our Bible study. We're going to pick up with Matthew chapter 4. And every Wednesday, we're going to be walking through the, the Gospel of Matthew, and you're welcome to join us. Grab a Bible. We use the Augustine Bible, so you know what version we use, which is the English Standard Version, Catholic Edition, which is known for its accuracy, its closeness to the Hebrew and Greek. That's why we like using it, especially for our study uh, purposes. And it's what we recommend for our graduate students here at the Augustine Institute as well. So we're going to jump into chapter 4 of the Gospel of Matthew. And it's the story of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. Jesus goes out in the wilderness and he fasts and prays for 40 days and 40 nights. And of course, this is the passage that the church always gives us to begin Lent. You know, as we do the 40 days of Lent, that's, that's the scene here. So we're going to dive into the temptation of Jesus. But before we do that, Michael, you've been with me in Israel, and I don't know if you've been with me in the Wadi Kelt, which is the traditional place uh, in this, this valley uh, that's just in the Judean wilderness and goes up north of the city of Jericho, where Jesus, according to tradition, prayed for the 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. And it would be an appropriate place. I remember my first taking my first hike down there. There's all kinds of caves down in this canyon, and it's very, very hot. And I remember uh, it was probably about 120 degrees or so. And I climbed down and got into one of the caves. And these are caves that David lived in and hid from when he was being hunted by Saul. This is the kind of the places where the Maccabees and others would hide out from the Greeks. Lots of so, cavemen in the old days. <laughs> yes. And so in these caves, what you would find is incredible shelter. And as soon as I got into the cave, there was shade. And I remember thinking of the Psalms, like Psalm 91, in the shelter of the Most High. Because once you get that shade, you drop about 20, 30 degrees. It's mm-hmm. amazing and remarkable. Mm-hmm. And uh, thinking of Jesus going in those caves, having refuge from the sun and the heat. And then, of course, at the, the, the bottom of the wadi, you might find water when there, after there had been rain. And uh, Herod the Great actually built an aqueduct through the wadi Kelt to bring water down to his plantations and to his, uh, his agricultural farms down in Jericho. So anyhow, and then there's one big mountain, right? Uh, you get to the end of the wadi Kelt, that overlooks the town of Jericho. And, of course, that's going to be the place, according to tradition, the Mount of Temptation, where the devil will take Jesus up on. Mm -hmm. So if you've ever been to the Holy Land, you've been to Jericho, you've seen the Mount of Temptation, and maybe you've you've gotten a tour. Sometimes buses will go on the very windy road that uh, goes along part of the Wadi Kelt. It's an interesting place. Uh, But being in that area and knowing how incredibly hot it is, you know, I just imagine our Lord... You know, spending a lot of the daytime with that heat in one of those caves, praying hmm. and fasting and spending that spiritual time. And the other beautiful thing about the Wadi Kelt in that area in the Judean wilderness is it's so oppressively hot that very few people would go there. So it is a place of solitude hmm. and silence. And our Lord 
is led by the Spirit. So let's just pick up with chapter 4, verse 1, and it's the Holy Spirit that leads Jesus out into the wilderness. Right. That's significant, isn't it, Michael? Yeah, it's very important. Jesus isn't going out into the wilderness simply, you know, to participate in some kind of ascetical uh, spiritual Olympics. You know, I think a lot of times people approach asceticism and penitential practices as almost as if it's a, a competition, right? And Jesus isn't going to do this just to demonstrate, you know, how tough he is or something like that. No, he's guided by the Spirit. And this is the same Spirit that came down upon him at his baptism in the previous chapter. He goes out into the wilderness to be tempted, to be tested by the devil. And, of course, Jesus in the wilderness for 40 days and for 40 nights picks up on that theme we've already mentioned, that new Exodus theme, mm. right, where Israel was out in the wilderness for 40 well, days you know, and for 40 I'm nights. I'm glad you bring that yeah. up because I think that there is an important allusion here to the Exodus mm-hmm. and to this idea of a new Exodus. And it's really triggered by this idea of, of the Spirit. Jesus is led by the Spirit Mm -hmm. because Israel, that's exactly the same phrase you get. Israel is led by the Spirit for 40 years in the wilderness. Mm -hmm. And it's a, you know, a a pillar of cloud by day and a column of fire by night. Mm -hmm. And Israel goes wherever the Spirit of God leads them through the wilderness, right? And that's really important to see that echo to Israel and the idea that this is kind of a, you've got the Exodus imagery in the backdrop. Mm-hmm. And uh, and very close to the backdrop, mm-hmm. uh, it's really the stage for what Jesus is doing, because you know later on there's going to be readers who, are, who will be wait a minute Jesus is led by the Spirit. I thought Jesus was the Son of God, mm-hmm. the second person of the Trinity. Why does he need to be led by the Spirit? That starts to make me uncomfortable. Maybe Jesus is human; he's not divine. And of course, we think of uh, early reader in the early church, Arius, mm-hmm. who read it that way. He read Jesus being led by the Spirit. He didn't make the connection to the allusions to the Old Testament and to Israel, that Jesus is the new Israel here, and not making those Old Testament allusions to the Exodus and to Jesus being, in a sense, a new Israel. um, They thought, well, Jesus was led by the Spirit, therefore, the fact that he had to be led by the Spirit, maybe he wasn't really divine. And that's what Arius and Arianism is going to kind of argue, isn't it? Sure. And on the flip side, you might have people who would see Jesus as divine, and so then come to conclude that Jesus wasn't fully human. And so the story of the temptation is also going to underscore the reality of his human nature. So we see both natures yeah. in the Gospel of Matthew. Because he's going to be really, really hungry he's after fasting be, for 40 days and Yeah, it's one nights. of the most, uh, it's, to me, it's one of the most humorous passages in all of Scripture. Jesus was uh, fasting for 40 days and for 40 nights, and afterwards he was hungry. You know, it's like, Talk about understatement. Yeah, exactly right. I'm hungry if I just skip lunch, you know? <laughs> so here we see Jesus in his weakness again, in humility, embracing the weakness of humanity. The tempter comes to him and asks him the first question, asks him, if you are the son of God. It's interesting. We we don't get the sense that Satan really knows who Jesus is here in the narrative, and Aquinas and other church fathers would highlight this. He, he knows, according to Aquinas, that God is going to do something to redeem the world, but Satan isn't fully sure yet of who this person is he's talking to. Why? Well, because he looks like a human. He's weak like a human. Satan is proud. He would be unwilling to lower himself in this way. So it's really hard for 
Satan to be fully convinced even. He's not even assured that this is truly the Son of God. If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. This is going to be the first of three temptations. I think it's important to highlight the way this fits into uh, again, the story of Genesis, if, if you don't mind. I, I'd like to just explain this because we've already noted that Matthew is the book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ. You go back to the story of the fall in Genesis 3, and you'll see that Genesis actually tells us why Adam and Eve took the fruit. They say Genesis tells us that the fruit was good for food. It was delicious. It was a delight to the eyes. It was shiny. It was something they wanted to possess. And it was um, good to make one wise, right? Give you knowledge. And of course, knowledge is power. And so here you have three traps, right? An appeal to sensible reality, sensual, uh, kind of sensual temptation, the sensitive appetite. Then we have, or our senses, I should say. The mm-hmm. second thing is we have an appeal to um, to things you can have, to possessions, uh, goods. And then third, you have the desire to make one wise, to, to have knowledge, and knowledge is power, really pride. And in the, the tradition of the church, and I explain this, if you don't mind, I'm going to do a shameless plug, but mm-hmm. I have a book called Salvation, What Every Catholic Should Know. And in the last chapter, I go through this in some detail, but just to summarize what I explain there, in First John, we have a passage that, tries to connect all of sin, all the sins we face, according to Augustine and the other fathers, to three temptations. And the three temptations are the lust of the flesh, right? Again, sensible, sensual, illicit, carnal desire, right? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes. I see something, I want to have it. Coveting. Coveting, Mm -hmm. greed, right? And then the desire to be wise, right? The pride of life in 1 John chapter 2. So you can read all that if you're interested in 1 John 2, 15 through 17. And John, according to Augustine and Aquinas, is here summing up all the temptations. All the temptations we face are the lust of the flesh, it's good for food, appeals to sensible appetites. So think about, of course, sexual sins, but also Food, gluttony, drink, drug use, drug abuse, substance abuse, anything that brings you illicit carnal desire or carnal satisfaction. The second is greed, money, possessions, and then finally, power. I want to be in control. Jesus is going to be faced with all three of these temptations here mm. in that story. And the loaves are just the first, right? Yeah, let's dive into that first one because there's such a richness in the story. Great. And there's so many layers, as you mentioned here, Michael. The, the first one, of course, if you are the Son of God, I always think one of the things the devil likes to do is to undermine our identity. Mm. And, uh, and so if you are the Son of God, notice what he's trying to do. He's trying to weaken this sense that Jesus' connection to the Father, mm. if you are the Son of God, he wants him to question his identity. Mm. And that's what the devil wants each one of us to do. He wants to, are you worthy of God, you know the, the devil's going to say you're not worthy, mm. but we are adopted in our baptism as his, as God's children, and the devil wants us to deny that identity. And so, anyhow, I, I think of that if that that uh, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And of course, the devil always likes to go where we're weakest, right? Mm. He knows Jesus has just fasted for forty days and forty nights. He's famished from his fast, and the devil says. Look, turn these stones to bread, right? And on the surface, 
it's very hard to get somebody who's good or righteous to do something bad. But what the devil's trying to do is to get Jesus to use his authority and his uh, vocation and mission from God, being anointed with the Holy Spirit, to use that for himself, Mm. right? And, of course, he's not doing any terrible bad thing on the surface. There's no evil here. He's not choosing an evil. He's just choosing to serve himself and to use his power for himself. But that's exactly how the devil works. The devil will tempt bad people with bad things, Mm. but he tempts good people Mm. with things that will be, you know, self-serving, but not clearly or obviously wrong mm-hmm. at first. Mm-hmm. And and that's the subtle temptation of the devil, just like he got Adam and Eve to take the forbidden fruit, right? And uh, and so, and again, I think there's a, there's a subtlety to, to the devil's work here, and we want to use it just as, as you highlighted, Michael, to talk about, to, to look at this as a pattern for how we are to fight the devil. That's right. And I think that's an important thing that you were highlighting. Right, and, and one of the key ideas here is that he, the devil is appealing to our appetite for food. And, of course, anyone would say, well, wait, you need food. Yeah. How can you say that it would be a sin to eat food? Well, it's, of course, not a sin to eat food. Of course, God wants us to have sustenance. But recognizing Jesus' example here, the church has a long tradition of fasting. Why? Well, because... Food does bring us a certain amount of comfort. You know, I know when I'm worried about something, mm-hmm. I tend to overeat. We go for that comfort food, you know. We go for the Pringles in the pantry. If you did that all the time, you'd be fat, Michael. So you don't, you don't eat every time you're worried. I know you went too well. <laughs> well, I, I, it's not the Pringles. It's the Snickers that get to me. I'll tell you that. But, uh, but I will say that this is a temptation for, I think, a lot of people to, to, to find solace comfort in food. And and the reality is we do that because we lack faith in God, Mm -hmm. right? God wants us to trust in him. And so fasting is a way to manifest that, no, I'm not going to allow myself to receive these consolations. Instead, I'm going to put my my trust in the Lord. That's what Satan, I think, is trying to undermine here. And I love our Lord's response. Mm. You know, it is written. Mm. And I think Jesus is giving a response to the devil that we can imitate. Mm -hmm. He goes to the Word of God. Mm -hmm. So he's going to answer the deceptions of the devil with the Word of God. In other words, I think one of the things Jesus is teaching us is that God's Word in the Scriptures prepares us and equips us to do battle with the devil. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, God prepares us for this engagement. And so Jesus quotes, he says, It is written, Mm -hmm. you know, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That is a quotation from the Torah, one of the first five books of the Bible, from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 8, verse 3. And so we get that in reflection of Moses, who writes that at the end of the 40 years of wilderness wandering. Mm -hmm. And so as Moses writes chapter 8 of Deuteronomy, he's reflected on the lessons, the spiritual lessons of the wilderness wandering of Israel. And one of those lessons is that man does not live by bread alone. In other words, you can't fully be satisfied and happy if you have all the food of the world. You know, it's not going to satisfy your heart, Mm. right? Satisfying your stomach is not always going to satisfy your heart. Mm. And what will satisfy the heart is the food that is the Word of God. 
Right. Mm-hmm. And so the saints have long pointed out that Jesus gives us a model here. How do we overcome temptation? We go to sacred scripture. And here's just a moment to just pause, right? There's only one book you can read at every Mass. I love Thomas Aquinas, but we don't read Thomas Aquinas' writings at Mass. I, I love John of the Cross, but we don't read John of the Cross at Mass. There's only one book that we read at Mass, and it's Scripture, because Scripture is the Word of God and the inspired words of God, right? And so, and words of men, but of course, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so, Jesus gives us a model here to how to overcome temptation. We turn to Scripture. Maybe we should turn to the second temptation. Yeah, let's go to the second one. Yeah. Because, uh, this is so rich, we could spend forever just on right. one. But then in verse 5, we're told that then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command, command his angels concerning you, and on their hands he will, he will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Mm-hmm. And of course, that's from uh, an important psalm. Psalm 91. Mm-hmm. And I love Psalm 91. It's, it's, a, it's a psalm uh, for nighttime prayer for the, for, for the Jews and their tradition uh, when it's dark. And, of course, the devil stopped short. And, of course, we know the devil can quote Scripture, but he never quotes it contextually. Because <laughs> the very next verse is that you shall put your foot on the head of the adder and the serpent. And the serpent. And the serpent is the yeah. devil, right? So, so, so. See, I love this passage because... Okay, Satan's going to quote scripture. There's one passage that he knows from the Old Testament. It's that one about stepping on a serpent. He doesn't like that one. So it's easy for him to remember that passage. Anyway, yep, I find yep. it comical. It is comical. And, uh, but, you know, Jesus isn't intimidated and in, in saying, oh, I can't use scripture. He goes back to the word of God. That's right? right. So let's just, you know, his response, Michael, is, again, it is written. So Jesus goes back to it is written with mm-hmm. the, to the scriptures again is written you shall not put the lord your god to the test now of course that's going to be from you want to talk about what that passage jesus response and the significance that's going to be from deuteronomy as well right and, exactly uh, yeah and and so here is again again another quotation from that section of deuteronomy that the first quotation is from moses is telling israel on the plains of moab before they go into the promised land Here's how you failed for 40 years. This is what you should have done, right? And so as Moses is giving these lessons to Israel, one of the things he tells them is, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test, especially when he's testing you, right? God is testing you in the wilderness, and you are not being faithful and trusting in him. And, you know, I'd like to just go back to this for a second. We talked about those three temptations, the lust of the flesh. One of them is pride, right? Wanting to to be number one, wanting to assert yourself, what the catechism calls uh, 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 self-assertion, contrary to reason. And so here we see Satan tempting him, throw yourself down, God will raise you up. You know, he, he he will demonstrate who you are, assert yourself as the son of God. Jesus turns down that temptation to pride and to put himself first. So again, Jesus is overcoming temptations that we are familiar with, right? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. These are things that we're encountering every day. I I love how he goes back, as you mentioned, back to that same section of Deuteronomy in chapter 6, verse 16. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And that's also echoing back to a story. And Moses is looking backwards to the story of Israel. You know, of course, you know, uh, the first temptation, it's worth mentioning, you know, change these stones into mm-hmm. bread. 
And uh, that was a temptation when Israel had no bread in Exodus chapter 16, leaving Egypt. And they panicked when they had no bread, and they rebelled and, did, and failed to trust God. Mm. And then God gave them manna, right? And now the second temptation uh, of Jesus, uh, this, again, this temptation to cast yourself off from this great height, and Jesus quotes from uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16, and this is reflecting on, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test, and that happens in Exodus chapter 17 mm. at Massah, or also known as Meribah, where the place of testing, where Israel puts God mm-hmm. to the test when they run out of water. And so you've got the, the, these three tests of Jesus are, in a sense, echoing back to Israel, leaving Egypt during the Exodus. And Israel is tested, in a sense, by the devil. Mm-hmm. And they're tested without bread, they're tested without water, and they failed those two tests. And here we see Jesus being faithful. He is, in a sense, the new Israel. And he is being a faithful son uh, to the Father, mm-hmm. and uh, and so these. And it's interesting that Jesus in the wilderness is reflecting on the passage that Moses reflected on on the spiritual lessons of Israel in the wilderness. That's right. I don't think that's accidental, right? No, it's not. And it's also not accidental that there's this motif of Jesus as the son of God because, of course, in Exodus, Israel is my firstborn son. So yeah. we're God's Exodus 4.22, I think. Four, what did I say? No, Exodus 4.22, yeah, yeah, that's exactly Exodus right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and Exodus 4.22, Israel my is my go. firstborn son, yeah, among the nations. So, so Jesus is the firstborn son who's in the wilderness, who succeeds where not only where Adam failed, but also where Israel failed. And of course, we get Jesus quote from script, quoting from Scripture again, and I love what you just said. Satan tried to take Scripture away from Jesus by citing it, right? Jesus doesn't go for that. <laughs> Jesus doesn't fall for that trap. Don't let Satan try to take Scripture away from you. Be Amen. like Jesus. Continue to go back to Scripture. Amen. And then let's go to the third. Let's yes. go to the third one then. Go ahead. So then he ta- the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their their glory, right? Their splendor. What is this? It's the lust of the eyes, right? These are the things that glitter. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. So here we have the temptation of worshiping Satan for what purpose? For wealth, for possessions, mm. for those kinds of things. Jesus says to him, be gone. Before you you give that solution that that Jesus is going to give, I just want to highlight, too, this is where the Antichrist does succumb. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. So the Antichrist, the one who's not Jesus, he will take the devil's temptation of taking all the kingdoms and power of the world. Right. And so uh, for the sake of glory and power of this world. And Jesus is willing to uh, give that up. Mm -hmm. You know, and uh, so it's it's a... it's an interesting um, temptation, but I just I just wanted to highlight that. that no, it's very idea. important. It's also important too that Jesus will not worship Satan, and he quotes from, of course, the Old Testament: uh, "You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve." Now, this is a really interesting passage because we're going to see throughout the Gospel of Matthew people fall down and worship 
Jesus. Now, the Greek word there that's used for worship, proskuneo, can have a range of meaning. You can worship a king, give homage to a king. In fact, you see that in First Chronicles. Be reverential. Right, uh, yeah. There are other instances where it doesn't refer to divine worship. But within the context of Matthew's gospel mm-hmm. now, okay, now we got to look at the way that term is used in Matthew. Because of Matthew 4, we recognize that the word is especially linked to divine worship. And so, this is huge implications. Now, going back, thinking about the story of the Magi, they came and they worshipped Jesus. And then going forward, we're going to see the apostles and disciples fall down and worship Jesus as well. So, it's, I think, quite significant. Yeah, no, I, I think I think they're exactly right. And I think one of the things that might surprise people is Jesus doesn't question the devil's ability to offer these things. Oh, that's and, so good. And yeah, later on, so Jesus will you know, refer to him as you know, the prince of this world. Mm. Right? So the devil has some kind of authority over the world and over the kingdoms of this world that are in rebellion with sin against God. And the devil has influence over these kingdoms and, these, and the power. And I think you know, the devil's temptation is, look, you want to be a Messiah. You want to be a, a great leader of the world. I'll make it easy for you. I'll give you that. Because the devil knows if he gives Jesus that, he'll give him all the kingdoms of the world. But now Jesus, as the Messiah, will not be leading them towards God but in a deeper rebellion from God's plan, right? And so it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great temptation, but you have to understand that the devil has an authority, he has an influence, and he still has that authority and influence. Mm-hmm. You know, and only from those who are baptized in a state of grace do we break from his authority and his influence, and we have to keep fighting to be free from him. Yeah, and one of the major themes is that Jesus is pronouncing or declaring the kingdom of heaven, It's not a kingdom of this world, right? And Caesar and Herod and all the rest have no claims on this kingdom, which comes from an entirely different realm, right? It's the inbreaking of the heavenly. And of course, the inverse, as you said, is is true, right? So if, if Jesus refuses Satan, what we're recognizing is other people have not. And so this raises questions, where did Herod get his power? Where does where does Rome get its power, right? Uh, there's a subtext here, I think, that we would do well to pay attention to, and that is the people who are the leaders of Israel in the story are cast in opposition to Jesus. They're not just working with Caesar. If they turn and reject Jesus, they're actually working with the evil one himself. So what we have in Matthew's Gospel is going to be a cosmic battle, of, 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 of course, cosmic proportions. And, uh, of course, Jesus' response uh, is the ultimate response, mm. right? Because what's going to liberate us from the power of the devil, the prince of this world, is worship. Mm. And that's why liturgy is so powerful and important. You know, when you think of the church, it doesn't have armies, <laughs> and many have mocked it as being irrelevant for that. Yes. Uh, but How many ha- divisions has the Pope? Has the Pope, exactly. Right. Napoleon's famous question. Yeah. And, you know, the, um, but worship and liturgy is exactly what liberates us. And so Jesus says, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And that idea of serve goes back to the Exodus. Uh, this idea of worship and serve goes back to the whole story of the Exodus, because Pharaoh, remember, won't let Israel go in Exodus chapter 5 
to go and serve me. Let my firstborn son go that he may serve me. Mm-hmm. And that word for serve in Hebrew, avad, can mean to worship. Mm-hmm. And that's what God wants Israel to do, to go to the wilderness and worship and serve him. And Pharaoh doesn't want God's people to do liturgical practice of worshiping the God of Israel. And because why doesn't Pharaoh want that? Because here we see Pharaoh, who has this power, is under the influence of the evil one who is jealous. He doesn't want people to worship God. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that's the great battle. And it's interesting, I think, the church is most free and liberated from the influence of the devil when she is worshiping with a pure heart, Mm -hmm. when she is practicing liturgically. It is our service of God in the liturgy. In fact, the word liturgy is the Greek word, which means a public work or service. So it would be the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word avad, to serve or to work in terms of this idea of liturgical work. And so, anyhow, I just want to highlight, right. Jesus ultimately is going to banish the devil, be gone, and the way we banish the devil is through proper worship. That's right, absolutely. Now, we only have a couple minutes left, Michael, so in, in the last minute, well, how would you, what, what do you want to... I would just say, where Adam fails, where Israel fails, mm. Jesus succeeds. Yeah. And that is an important lesson for all of us. We're, we are able to enter into a new creation. We can be remade. We have a Savior. We have Jesus himself who teaches us by his actions in Matthew 3 and 4. And then in Matthew 5, we're going to see he's going to spell it out in his own words in the Sermon on the Mount. That's uh, a perfect crystallization of this. And I, I think that what you're going to see is... This Bible study is so fun uh, to have this study with you. We're going to have a question and answer time. Look for those emails that will go out for a a Zoom webinar that uh, Michael and I will do to answer your questions. We'll do that a few times over the next couple months. And uh, we want to give you an opportunity to make this interactive. We hope this Bible study, as well as any of our forum programs, is enriching and blessing you. I want to thank all all of you who are part of our mission circle that support us with a a simple gift of $10 or more a month. Uh, Many of you, thousands of you, are helping to support our ministry that allow us to do this and enable us to make this available to to the world. We're so grateful for you, and we invite anybody who hasn't joined our mission circle to look into the mission circle, and there's special benefits of that. Uh, We want you to become part of our active community. It's a very special mission partner community that joins us, and I hope that this study has enriched you. And we want you to uh, learn from these Bible studies, learn from the Word of God so that you're armed and equipped to fight the temptations of the devil and to be free. May the Lord bless you uh, as you do these studies. And I want you to realize, too, that, you know, uh, get, your, get a good Bible and join us uh, on these Bible studies, right? And, uh, and if you don't have a Bible or you want to get a new one, we recommend the Augustine Bible. Uh, you can get it at catholic.market. Uh, it's a it's an excellent translation, and it's a translation that uh, I, I really love. I know Michael, you use it now in your classes and your teaching, and uh, but keep the word of God close at hand so that you'll be able to repel all the temptations of the devil. God bless you. You can watch this Bible study in video format by visiting form.org. Formed is an online Catholic streaming service created by the Augustine Institute and Ignatius Press with award-winning studies and parish programs, inspiring audio content, movies, e-books, and family-friendly kids programming. To support the mission of the Augustan Institute, please visit missioncircle.org.